Good morning to the few people in Washington who are not on vacation this week, I think. <laughs> I have been enjoying the traffic. <laughs> this is our annual question platform, your opportunity to ask me questions. And I've had a number of people write ahead of time and send me some questions. But it is not too late. As you walked in, the ushers may have given you an index card and um, offered you a pen. And so if you would like to ask a question, a philosophical question, an ethical question, a question about the world, <clears throat> that you'd like to see me attempt to answer, you are so welcome to do so. Um, just jot it down on an index card. Add your name so that if I don't get to it today, I can follow up with you and uh, later. And um, Karen will invite them to come forward at some point in a little bit, so you have a couple of moments to think about it. To get us in the mood, I have this poem from the theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who had some questions himself. Where am I? Who am I? How did I come to be here? What is this thing called the world? What does the world mean? How did I come into the world? Why was I not consulted? If I am compelled to take part in reality, where is the director? I should like to make a remark to this director. Or is there no director? Where shall I turn with my complaint? I invite now our guest musician, whom we're so delighted to welcome back, Kwaku, to begin. Calabash, bring your calabash, mofia mo ketchinaba, waya waya nu kuku. Hey, everybody, everybody, bring your calabash, bring your calabash, mofia mo ketchinaba, waya waya nu kuku. Everybody. Everybody bring your calabash, bring your calabash, mofia mo ketchinaba, waya waya nu kuku, waya waya nu kuku, waya waya nu kuku, waya waya nu kuku, waya waya nu kuku. Everybody, everybody bring your calabash, bring your calabash, mofia mo ketchinaba, waya waya nu kuku. Good morning, and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen schofield Leka. My pronouns are per and pers, shorthand for person. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning, whether you're here in the room with us or joining us via Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag, and that helps us to welcome you especially as newcomers. And we are here to answer, in addition to Amanda's questions that she's going to answer this morning, any of us who are members here are happy to answer any questions that you might have about why this community is so important to us, something we love to talk about. But really what we want to hear is what it is that drew you to us today and what it is that you are seeking, whether it's answers to questions or some thing special in your life. And so we also hope that you will join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and the social hall across the way. We also, if you would consider sharing your email with us, you might have picked up a gold sheet um, at the welcome table and you can drop that into the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. And that just is a way for us to give you a kind of an update about the, some of the many things that happen here each week at WES. I'd like to remind everyone that you can please silence your electronic devices so that you and your neighbor can be fully present this morning. Although, because we would love it while you have it in your hand if you check in on social media and let your friends know that you're here and maybe they will join you next week.
I now invite forward Patty Absher to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Patty is the founder and leader of the Immigration Film Festival, and so we are delighted to have her say a bit about that this morning. Um, good morning. I'm still half asleep up here, asleep at the switch. Um, well, I, I was one of the founders of the Immigration Film Festival, and it's been six years now that we've kept it going. And we've engaged people all across this area of Washington, D.C. and Virginia, and um, it's been, I'm not leading it this year, but I'm very interested in closing the circle all the work that's been done by Catherine o Kathleen Ocester Ocast and others in our community um, to make this happen. But you're the, you're the last part of what needs to happen this year. We need you there. It's less than two weeks away. Today I have flyers and I have my computer. We can sign you up, get you some tickets. It's all going to be at GW in uh, just less than two weeks from today. And then there's more that will continue in October. So if you stop by the desk, uh, we'll be happy to get you two-for-one pricing on the tickets. So it's really a great deal, and they're wonderful films. We looked over hundreds of them to choose the ones that you're going to have an opportunity to see at GW. Thank you. Um, the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of each person, every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together. Joy was up there earlier. <laughs> and support each other throughout life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. And as Patty lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words here on the screen. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. So uh, this is a good moment. If you have any additional questions that you would like to pose to Amanda and you have them written on a card, if you could bring those forward or Genevieve can help collect them, I think, as well, so that Amanda has a hot minute to consider <laughs> before she's on the spot. Thank you all. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. Today, we're doing it slightly differently. We join many congregations, including UU and ethical culture societies, and national parks in ringing a bell to mark the 400th anniversary of the first ships bringing enslaved Africans to what is now American soil. 1619 marked the moment African culture became an integral part of American culture and an indelible influence on the development of our nation. This afternoon at 3 p.m., you may hear bells from many places ringing today for four minutes, but we will ring our bell now four times in recognition of four centuries of slavery, resistance, and emancipation and its impact on our nation. Africans' fight for freedom, equality, and inclusion were transformative because it began our nation on its journey toward racial equality, something we are still working toward today.
As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. I encourage you to settle into your seat, relaxing your body, finding a comfortable way to sit that puts your body at ease. Close your eyes or soften your gaze. Take a big breath in and let it out. Continue to breathe deeply and evenly, feeling the rhythm of your breath. As specific thoughts surface, simply let them drift away. As you breathe, open your mind and your heart as preparation for asking questions and thinking about answers together during platform this morning.
Thank you so much, Kweku. I Every time I experience percussion-only music, I feel so um, aware of the natural inclination of our bodies toward rhythm. Um, so thank you so much. I feel that heartbeat and the way that the blood moves in our body, I really um, felt it so particularly. Thank you. All right, well, I have a number of questions. One of the things I love about um, that sometimes and not always happens when we do question uh, platforms like this is when, they, um, when the questions sort of come together into a pattern of some kind. And sometimes there'll be um, categories. Sometimes I'll feel like, oh, you know, three people want this kind of question and these are really the same question. And sometimes, every once in a while, it happens magically that the questions really flow into each other. And I think if I can get the order right, that we have one of those moments this morning that people are asking questions that lead into each other and that many of them are really about purpose, the purpose of what we're doing here on kind of the m most macro level and, um, and the micro level. So that's what a lot of these questions are. So I'm hoping that I can make that all flow. I will say one person asked, what day is the auction? So I just wanted to answer that one really specifically. It's Saturday, November 2nd, um, and uh, you should definitely come there. I think that's super fun. Um, what day is the auction? Less sort of about our macro purpose in the world, but um, a good time. Uh, <laughs> And then we had one, one person asked a question about whether we would have printed programs on Sunday again. And that also doesn't quite flow with the rest of my questions, so I'm gonna, I wanted to address that now. Um, which is to say, we're actually experimenting with the idea of not returning to printed programs um, because of the environmental impact of the printing every week, in part. Um, and so you'll see all around the building these QR codes so that you can pull up a program on your phone and read it on your phone. Um, and the bonus of that is that then you, have, you can have your phone out during platform and be scrolling through it. And I won't know whether you're just studiously looking at your program or actually, you know, bored and um, checking your, your text messages. So either way is fine. Um, I want this to be whatever you need in this moment. That might be a nap. It's okay. Um, so we're still experimenting with that, but definitely welcome feedback. This, this is a piece of feedback. This person would like the printed programs back, I think. We've heard from other folks who prefer it this way. So keep letting us know what works for you as we continue playing with that balance between sort of the desire to have something in our hands and to get the information and the impact on the environment and all of those questions that we try to hold in balance in our lives, right? Life is very rarely is there an easy, perfect answer. Instead, we're holding things in balance. So look, that did turn out to be about our core purpose in the world. Um, okay, so, so I want to start with the broadest question, I think, that I received in preparation for this platform. Someone asked me, what is the ultimate goal of humanism? I mean, that was pretty big. What is the ultimate goal of humanism? And so before I answer that, for folks who are perhaps with us for the very first time or unfamiliar with who we are and what ethical culture is and what humanism is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer some unasked questions first, and then hopefully we'll get to that question as well. Um, so this congregation is part of the ethical culture movement, right? A movement which started in 1876 by a guy named Felix Adler, who I will be quoting later. And... Um, and uh, over the course of history from the 1876, the founding of this movement, to today, ethical culture has come to be, not originally, but come to be really part of the broader humanist movement in America and internationally. And, um, and so when we, when we talk about humanism here sometimes, we are talking about us about who we are, and we're also talking about a broader movement, a movement that is bigger than who we are, and which is practiced in different ways, right? So sometimes we'll talk about secular humanism versus religious humanism, or versus congregational humanism. Secular humanism, um, I like to think of that, it's about behavior. 
So secular humanism shows up in with secular behavior like book groups or lectures, and religious or congregational humanism shows up with congregational or religious behavior like communities that gather, you know, we light a candle, right? Um, uh, we have markers of the year, sort of the, the kind of congregational or religious behavior. But the core humanist values and ideas are really very similar between secular humanism and religious humanism. It's more about how you gather together and what you do when you gather and less about what you believe. So I think that this question is about that core humanism. What is the ultimate goal? I want to make sure I got the question right. What is the ultimate goal of humanism writ large? So I did get this one ahead, which meant that I was able to do a little bit of research. And I wanted to share some of the words from the Humanist Manifesto 3. So um, in, in 1932 or 33, and I'm really bad at dates, and see, if you had your phone out, you could check me right now and then tell me which was correct. Um, uh, the first Humanist Manifesto was written. That was a document that articulated for the very first time the idea of humanism as being a, a kind of life philosophy that could guide you in your life the same way traditional religions have guided people in their lives. So it wasn't the very first time somebody had a thought that was humanist, right? But it was this document created by Unitarian ministers and professors and, um, and uh, sort of philosophers and thinkers about what humanism could be in the world. That first humanist manifesto was a lot of who, what humanism wasn't which makes sense when you first start out, right? You're often I identifying yourself in reaction to other things, right? Here's what we're not. But by now we've gotten to the third humanist manifesto. And so I wanted to quote from that document, <clears throat> which was written uh, a few years ago within sort of recent memory. And it says, humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. I think that last part is the key. To lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. And then that's at the very beginning. And at the very end, after a whole bunch of other stuff, because anything written by committee, as you know, has like 15 clauses and is four pages long, by the end, <clears throat> it, it echoes back that beginning idea. We aspire to this vision, all those clauses, we aspire to this vision with the informed conviction that humanity has the ability to progress toward its highest ideals. Note the ability, not necessarily having proven that historically. <laughs> the responsibility for our lives and the kind of world in which we live is ours and ours alone. So for me, those phrases really speak to what is the ultimate goal of humanism is to create lives of personal fulfillment ourselves and to find that that fulfillment personally actually comes from the creation of a world that is better for all, right? A, a more humane world. And to me, that idea of a, a more humane world, humanism isn't about uh, you know, making things better for a human or just caring about humans. It is about humanity in the, in the, the deepest definition of the word, the humaneness of our world. Sometimes folks will talk about um, humanism, you know, and really emphasize the, the not part. You know, it's not about supernaturalism. It, it's about um, identifying, you know, rooting things in human experience. I think more and more people are seeing the importance of humanism as being about how we shape and change the world. And you see that in um, the, the transition of sort of the, the focus on, on the new atheists and some of that writing, really transitioning now into people having much more interest in writing that is about how we can act for justice in the world, how we can build a beautiful world around us, and how that connects with having beautiful lives ourselves. 
there's sort of a side question that I, that I wanted to address, and, I, and it's related to a second question I received, which was, what is the meaning and value of WES specifically? So I want to say a couple things about that. Remember I said that ethical culture really only became part of the humanist movement kind of later, after its founding in 1876. That's in part because humanism wasn't really articulated in the same way in 1876. It's also because the founder of ethical culture, Felix Adler, didn't really identify um, as a humanist. In fact, he, he continued to not identify as a humanist even when humanism was pretty broadly articulated in, in America. Um, but I think in many ways the ultimate goal of ethical culture is actually very similar to at least how I see the ultimate goal of humanism. And it's right there in the name. So ethical culture, the reason that Adler chose that name, he, he was hoping that the movement would build an ethical culture. He didn't mean just within an individual community or within an individual heart. I mean, he was a big thinker. He meant like out there, all of culture, all of society, all the whole country, the whole world would be moving toward a more ethical culture. That's the meaning behind the name. And you know when you say things a lot of times, you sometimes lose what the meaning is. You have to go back and think why was that word or that phrase chosen. So I think that that's an important part of, of what ethical culture was intended to do as well. I told you I was going to quote from Felix Adler, um, and, um, and I am. Here we go. Um, this is from the founding address um, when Adler was creating ethical culture. <clears throat> so he wrote, um, oh, it's too long to quote, you guys. Um, okay, we're going to try to, here we go. We're going to, uh, uh, okay, so uh, a lot of things are noble. Uh, the world is dark around us, and the prospect seems deepening in gloom, and yet there is light ahead. More things, there's the stars. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. We are aiding in laying the foundations of a mighty edifice. I told you he was a big thinker. Whose completion shall not be seen in our day, no, nor in centuries upon centuries after us. But happy are we indeed if we can contribute even the least towards so high a consummation. The time calls for action. I think this speaks to what his goal was. The time calls for action. Up then, and let us do our part faithfully and well. And, oh, friends, our children's children will hold our memories dearer for the work which we begin this hour. You can hear in this really kind of lofty, big language his dream, his imagining that this would have effects far beyond what he imagined or could see at that time. Our children's children, right, will honor our names for what it is that we are creating, for how we are going to change the world around us. And in fact, Adler, in his own lifetime, was part of and saw the, the fruition of his work in really significant ways. So he was part of the um, creation of the very first child labor laws and um, the creation of the um, uh, later ethical culture leaders were part of the creation of the NAACP and the ACLU. Um, so he saw change in his lifetime, but he imagined that it would continue and continue more and more. Okay, so these, these questions about the ultimate goal of humanism, the point of Wes, okay, I think lead us into another question that I received. And actually, there were two that I thought go together. <clears throat> so one question was, I have always appreciated Wes's message of care for the community and environment, but not many of the messages, I think he, he was saying, are about personal happiness. Um, why not, okay, why not, explore how to feel great for oneself without spirituality and the connection to the eclectic and esoteric. So I think that the, the, the question at its heart is we talk a lot about the world out there. And in fact, as I just described the ultimate goal of humanism, it was a pretty like, who for the world answer, right? How does that relate and why don't we talk more about our own personal happiness. And then the other, I've decided it's actually a different question. Never mind. It doesn't go together. That's okay. So, um, so the Humanist Manifesto 3 
talks about the idea that working, these are the words, working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. That was one of those clauses in there that the committee wrote together, right? The idea that these two things are connected. And, and I think that's right. I think back on my platform from last week, the sort of both and idea, the idea that two things that seem as though they are different from each other can and indeed must be held in a sort of creative and positive tension. And, and this question, the aversion of this question, you talk so much about the world, why don't we ever talk about our, our, own, our own happiness, is raised in almost every progressive congregation that I know. My colleagues all get versions of this question from people over, um, over the, the years. And I, and I do think, I think there's, there's a piece that's about um, where the question suggests a dichotomy that doesn't necessarily exist, right? And I turn to those words from the Humanist Manifesto 3 that our own happiness can be tied up in our connection to the world around us. That working for justice, understanding more deeply our connection to other people, even understanding the injustice around us can be intimately connected to our own sense of purpose and meaning, and lots of studies have shown, right, that, that it's that sense of meaning and purpose that's actually most core to our overall well-being, not um, sort of day-to-day -day happiness, right? Not like, oh, I happen to like the things that are happening in my life right now. The thing that gets us through the peaks and valleys of life is having that sense of um, deeper meaning. So. So part of me wants to say these are, the way the Humanist Manifesto says, these are intimately connected to each other. These are the same kind of thing. And then, and, right, even while they are connected to each other, I think there's also a real validity in asking the question. And in asking the question, you know, the, the deeper question, I think, or the deeper yearning behind it is, I want to make sure that I am fed here, that my, um, my own uh, soul or spirit or sense of, um, of happiness and fulfillment is fed while I am here. So, so sometimes I have like a practical answer to that, which is actually if you go and you look at the platforms and you tally them up and which ones are about personal engagement and which ones are about engagement in the world, you will probably find that there's a pretty um, even mix. We work really hard to make sure that that's the case. So like last Sunday's platform was really pretty much about how we hold both ands in our lives in a personal way. It didn't particularly talk about the world around us. Um, I think, I suspect, that the experience of Wes talking more about the world around us has been heightened in recent years because, now perhaps there's been a shift in how we talk here, but I think also it has to do with the sense that we, each of us in our daily lives, are bombarded by the world around us in a way that was not true 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And in a way that I think relates to a different question I got, which was, will you, it was a request sort of, will you please deliver a platform about mitigating our compassion fatigue, right? I don't know if that phrase resonates for any of you, compassion fatigue, but we are in this time so deeply surrounded by, um, information about how everyone is doing in the world. And um, spoiler alert, not great, right? We have access to by the second, by the minute updates all throughout our country and internationally. And I think that idea of compassion fatigue is a, a real one that many of us are grappling with. Um, so that, to me, actually comes back to that question about what is the meaning and value of Wes. Um, because I think, you know, there's these big broad answers about the ultimate goal of humanism or the ultimate goal of ethical culture. But the value of 
Wes of this particular community and congregation, which is very similar to the value of any particular community and congregation, is really, I think, encapsulated in our statement of purpose in that phrase that talks about how we go through life together, how we support each other and celebrate together through life, that we are a place where we bring ourselves, we bring our compassion fatigue, we bring our hope to talk about justice, and we bring our hope to talk about personal fulfillment, and we, we create a container together to hold all of that. And so, you know, platforms are nice, and thinking about big ideas are great, and all of the groups where we think about that big stuff is important and interesting. And for me, the real value of Wes comes in the individual relationships that you make with each other. The real value of Wes is in the casserole that shows up when someone is sick. The real value of Wes is in seeing the child who grows each year at our winter festival candle lighting. It's the idea of choosing to go through life with a group of people together. That, that, that choice, that movement through life together only happens in a community like this one. It doesn't happen anywhere else in our lives. We have our family whom we don't choose, right? We have our friends whom we choose but are usually a much more limited number of people, right? You might have five to 10 people that you feel deeply connected to in your friendship circle. And then we have our, our, our work or our school or our volunteer groups or sometimes our neighborhood can function in this way, I think. But the idea of being in a large community of people, all of whom are bringing together their challenges, they're with each other through their grief, they remember when you lost your loved one. They remember when you celebrated a new job. They, they move with you through life together. That, to me, is the point of a community like this one. And it actually transcends all of the theological and philosophical pieces. It's why people look for communities like this one, no matter what they believe, right? Depending on what they believe, they might find different communities to fill that need. But there is a, a human need to be connected to each other across time that I think a place like this answers and offers. I got a couple of really great questions from one person. Um, uh, and, and I think one kind of flows out of the conversation that we just had, right, um, about what a place like Wes offers to us. This person wrote, after one of forms, I took your advice to work on acknowledging and being more friendly to other people in my apartment building. That was a platform where I was talking about um, how to fight tyranny, and there's this great little book that says one of the ways to fight tyranny is to build small connections with each other. So, um, so I took your advice to try to be more friendly to people in my apartment building, but for some people, my attempts to engage with them on some level seem to leave a negative impression. So here's the question, which I loved. How do you begin to establish trust in a community where people don't seem to already trust each other? So I think the reason that it connects to what is Wes's value, right, is that my practical answer to that question, here you are in an apartment building, and it doesn't have a setup that you are necessarily going to be friends with your neighbors, right? Many of us, there are apartment buildings that are different than that. It's actually one reason that we have several families in this community that like co-housing, where I think there is an expectation, right, that you are coming into a particular kind of living community where people will be connected, where you will be creating, you know, losing, creating, losing, creating, right, like in any community, trust with each other. In an apartment building, people go in with an expectation that they're going to have an apartment to live in not necessarily that they're going to be a community with each other, right? They pay their rent so that they have their walls with the door that shuts and locks, not they pay their rent so that they are connected to all the people around them. And I think that's so. part of the value of a place like Wes is 
just like a co-housing community, we come in with an expectation that we're going to be something different with each other. In an apartment building where that expectation doesn't exist, my practical response is to create opportunities, containers, for that trust to be built. So I think about like holiday parties, right? Even if we don't celebrate whatever holiday is being recognized in the party, we have an innate sense of what a holiday party is. What is the container of a holiday party? It's a place where we're going to go and be social with each other. We don't have that innate sense about the hallway or the mail room necessarily in our apartment building. And so creating in those, in those places that don't have an expectation of community building, creating containers that specifically are intended to, to build community, like a holiday party, like a block party, like a, you know, the pool party or something like that, helps to build the trust that then can transfer to the mail room, which doesn't carry with it any built-up expectation of, um, of community connection. Okay. Um, I liked that too, but I think I'm not going to do that right now. Okay, I'm going to answer that some other time. Um, okay, here was a really fun one, which then I have, so there's two or three. If you don't hear your question answered, I'm going to come back to it later. It'll show up in a platform, I betcha. So I, I want to end with two more. So someone wrote to me and said, a few weeks ago, my colleague James Croft, who's one of the leaders at the St. Louis Ethical Society, came and gave a platform here about joy. And um, apparently, in the course of that platform, James shared what his favorite emoji is. I wrote to James, and I asked him what his favorite emoji was, because I'd heard about it, and I wanted to make sure I knew. And he wrote back just with that emoji. But then I couldn't tell whether he was just, ex it's, it's like the joy face. It's like, oh, with the tears, you're, so, you're smiling so much, you have tears coming out of your eyes. And I couldn't tell if he was laughing at my question or if he was giving me information, he was giving me information, it turned out. That's his favorite emoji. And so someone wrote to me and said, similar to James's, James Croft's declaration of a favorite emoji during a guest platform address, do you have a favorite emoji? If so, what is it? This might be my favorite question, bar none, of any year for my Ask Me Anything platform. What is your favorite emoji? I had to think about it for a minute. And I decided it's an emoji I don't actually use that much. Um, but it's meaningful to me and, and I want to, so I want to tell you why. So my favorite emoji is the one that's um, the little, the little side kiss face. Do you know what I mean? The, the, it's like, hmm. it's like kissing you. Hmm. And there's like a little heart coming out of the mouth maybe, or their eyes, or I can't remember where the heart is. Um, nor can I recreate it with my face, but it's the side, it's the side kiss emoji like, hmm. Um, and, and here's why I like that emoji. I do not use that emoji with my spouse. Um, maybe I have once or twice. I use that emoji most uh, with a friend of mine. She actually started the use of that emoji in our text messages um, a number of years ago. You know, she wrote me some message and then she sent me little kiss face emoji. And, um, and when I got it first, I thought, oh, that's, like, is that weird? Like, is that a, a romantic emoji? And so this is why it's my favorite one. It's not. She didn't mean it romantically in any way. And to me, that is such an important understanding of what love is. So I got another question today, which was, what does love mean to you? And I have learned a lot about that here at West because of Wes's tradition of Pay Attention to Love Day, which invites us to expand thinking about love in a mainly romantic way over Valentine's Day and instead to think about love really broadly. So in American society, we have a tendency to associate um, uh, physical affection, uh, kissy face emojis, and declarations of I love you with our most intimate family members and with um, people we are romantically involved with. And, um, and that's particularly true, I would say, in white American society and sort of probably brought from kind of a, a WASP viewpoint, right? An English um, 
you know, sort of stiff upper lip um, viewpoint. There is not a lot of engagement in what it feels like to love our friends, um, to have platonic, connected relationships with our friends. I, I remembered this most um, significantly when I went to my five-year high school reunion. That was a while ago. Um, and I was pregnant with my uh, first child. Wait, it must have been my 10-year. 10-year high school reunion, I was pregnant with my first child. And um, I went to an all-girls high school. And the girls, the culture of the girls in the high school um, was one of physical affection among friends. Like many teenage girls, we had a freedom to put our arms around each other, to sit on the sofa with each other, etc. And I had sort of forgotten that, and I came back to the reunion um, quite pregnant, and, um, and I remembered it because all of my friends, most of whom I had had essentially no co contact with since high school, I'd stayed in touch with some, but not many, all of them felt totally free to um, touch my belly. <laughs> and, and so I want to put like a bookmark on sometimes that's cool and sometimes it, it wasn't. And actually, you should always ask um, the way it's always good to ask anybody when you touch them at any time if they would like you to have a hug or, um, you know. And so, there, so there's a bookmark there. And it was OK in this case for me because we had created that kind of relationship as teens that carried over in a way I hadn't expected into our adulthood. And so, so that's the, for me, the idea of, of love, what does love mean to me? It means being able to send a kissy face emoji with, with consent and appropriate boundaries, et cetera, to someone that I love as my friend, right? Um, it means sort of a, um, an expansive and encompassing idea of love having many forms and affection being possible in many, um, again, consensual, I'm just going to say that word every other sentence, um, uh, many ways, right? That there are many kinds of relationships in our lives that can call for and build on our love for each other. So that felt important to me. And it's a cute emoji. So there's that. I'm going to close our time together now with two poems um, about questions. Um, and I didn't answer all the questions. Um, there were some really juicy ones that I hope to get to at a later time or that I'll follow up with you on individually perhaps as well. Um, your questions are always the thing that keeps my work interesting and beautiful. And I'm so grateful for the kinds of questions that this community um, brings into our time together. So here is a piece from Rainier Maria Rilke, one of my very favorite readings that I have repeated to myself over and over through my life. Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Alice Walker wrote a response to Rilke, which I share with you to close. I must love the questions themselves, as Rilke said like locked rooms full of treasures to which my blind and groping key does not yet fit, and await the answers as unsealed letters, mailed with dubious intent and written in a very foreign tongue. And in the hourly making of myself, no thought of time to force, to squeeze the space I grow into.